My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And we have a very special guest who we met yesterday. Woohoo, lucky amazing, accident. Amazing how things work. Anyway, we had a very interesting discussion with this gentleman, and we're going to be talking to him for the next three hours, isn't it? <laughs> Surprise! Anyway, I think we have Frank on the line. Are you there, Frank? I am indeed. All right. So we are talking today with Frank Tester, adjunct professor of Native Studies at University of Manitoba and uh, pre previously a professor of social work at UBC. He seems to know a lot about universal basic income. And since we have done a couple shows about it and we are very interested, we decided to pick his brains for the sake of our listeners. Hi, Frank. Hi. So um, give us just a little bit of uh, background on the history of our various tests of universal basic income in Canada. Well, um, we've never had such a thing in Canada, but we have, as everybody knows, a long list of um, programs that are designed to help people with their income. Um, I guess the most notorious and controversial one uh, is, of course, the old uh, social assistance or welfare program. Um, but we've had uh, family allowances, which were canceled in currently a pilot project in Ontario with, uh, what, do, what do they call it, guaranteed basic income? It's guaranteed uh, minimum annual income. Yeah. Right. And so what does that look like? Uh, well, this is just an experiment, and there have been uh, other experiments that have taken place in Canada. Uh, 1977, 1978, there were experiments conducted in Dauphin. Manitoba with the idea of everyone receiving a basic um, minimum annual income. Um, this experiment is um, another attempt to look at uh, the idea and address what are some of the concerns that politicians and the general public from time to time have about the whole concept and idea of providing everyone in the country with a basic guaranteed uh, annual income. So it's an experiment where they give people uh, different amounts of money depending on their status, depending on whether they're single or married or married with one children or two children, so forth and so on, mm -hmm. and um, then monitor what happens, how people behave, what they do as a result of receiving the income. Um, and uh, this experiment is a little interesting because of the depth and nature of the that have been conducted with people after data has been collected on how they've spent the and dealt with and managed the amounts of money that they've been given. So there has been some data coming back from that experiment. It's been going on for, what, a year so far? Yeah. Um, and it looks like it's going to continue. It doesn't. Uh, the new government, the Ford government, has indicated that it's going to cancel. In fact, uh, they have indicated 
uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office released a report this spring saying that it would cost, I think, $43 billion to have a guaranteed basic income across Canada. Um, and that is just taking the, the overall cost of $76 billion and subtracting the federal benefits that it would replace, like welfare, as you were describing, or, or EI, I suppose, as well. Are they, are they taking into account the change of jobs on a federal level as well? Because they would have less employees right. administering, right? So yeah, do they there's take lots of problems with these numbers. Um, it does depend on what you include, what you exclude, and what assumptions you make. Right. Of course, how, what this program costs, and that's a source of concern, is, is related, obviously, to the level of benefit that people receive. What should that level be, and how does that compare with the kind of benefits that many people are currently receiving? Mm-hmm. What are the implications for, as you said, the uh, size and nature of the a bureaucracy, which is administering a plethora of different programs that are now brought under, if you like, one more, I would say, manageable and streamlined roof? Um, and then, of course, how do you calculate and what might be the economic, let alone personal and social benefits from such a program, and how do those figure in your calculation? So, you know, these these are uh, maybe I could say they're just numbers. It, it they, they vary a lot depending on what you include, what you don't include, and what assumptions you make. Mm-hmm. Are they learning anything from the Ontario experiment about those types of assumptions, like? Uh, maybe unexpected benefits or savings or unexpected costs of the program? Well, the, the, one of the main concerns and one of the issues that's been talked about, is always talked about, in fact, when this idea is uh, under discussion, is what in the world does a program like this do to the good old so-called work ethic? Um, if people are given a guarantee annual income, are they like, they say, to heck with this, I'm not going to work anymore. Um, And the results from the Ontario, the interviews that have been conducted with people who have noted in their reporting that they were working less or that they had stopped working are very interesting. Um, And this is something that's, of course, uh, I think in light of previous experiments, it's always needed more detailed attention. So what they're discovering is that um, people, in fact, are are doing, I would say, very creative and useful things that uh, have serious economic implications when you look at them. For example, some people decide, well, look, I'm going to stay home and look after my uh, aging and very ill parent. Or, you know, I have a disabled son, and uh, it's always been costly and difficult uh, to um, accommodate uh, his needs. So um, I'm going to stay home and, and look after him. Um, all of these things may represent considerable, et cetera, et cetera. These may represent considerable savings to the government in terms of um, institutionalization, the costs of subsidizing uh, people who are in seniors' residences, um, assisted living, uh, settings, um, people who are receiving um, grants and funds 
to assist them in managing and dealing with a child, for example, who is seriously disabled, etc., etc. So what I'm saying is that the mere fact that someone has decided to not work, maybe at a job which only paid minimum wage, um, and stay home and take care of someone, uh, not necessarily a, a, a bad thing or something that costs the government money. It may, in fact, uh, actually save them um, money in other ways. Um, and there are other other reasons why people have dropped out of uh, work. Um, to go back to school, for example, because they want to pursue a career that they've always been interested in, but for which they didn't have uh, have uh, training and experience. Well, ultimately, that has a positive, I would say, economic implications. Mm-hmm. Um, some people also want to use the opportunity to start their own business now that they have a bit of a nest egg and something that gives them some security while they're trying something out. Um, that's not a, uh, a negative uh, economic reason. So yeah, these are some of the findings so far from the uh, Ontario experiment, which are interesting and deserve a lot of attention. How long is the experiment supposed to continue? Um, um, it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's supposed to carry on for another couple of years. Okay. I think it was supposed to be a three-year study. Yeah, I've already so. done one year, so yeah, it's about three. I'm um, because I'm no longer teaching social policy. You see, I don't often pay as much attention to the exact details of these kinds of things. I'm more interested mm-hmm. in the kind of, you know, some of the larger social uh, issues and problems and, and that are typically associated with the idea. Speaking of uh, the social issues, aside from the economic, what would be some of the potential social benefits of a program like this? Well, you know, that's uh, a bigger question than perhaps it seems to be. Um, what, what interests me and what concerns me at the same time is that, that we're rapidly um, moving in a direction where, well, two things are happening. One, um, jobs are being automated and people who were formerly in high-paid and often union jobs are fewer and fewer. Um, uh, the classic example, but it's certainly not the only one, is the automobile industry, where you have a whole line of robots uh, doing things that people used to do. Um, but, I mean, you can see the same thing in your local grocery store or Home Depot or any uh, one of a number of retail outlets where, you know, you use a, a self-checkout, you know, Ikea, so forth and so on. Uh, you know, you, you don't you don't deal with somebody who's um, standing behind a, a register and um, recording your purchases and dealing with you in that regard. So people are being replaced by um, machines and electronic systems at a rapid rate, and I don't see this. I, I don't see this uh, ending, um, and that means that uh, the service sector. Where people have to which people have retreated historically is now being automated, and those people are going to have where do they go? I mean, well, where do you find employment once the service sector is being gutted in this country? And there's lots of data on this, and I've looked at it. It's really interesting. I mean, if you look at the number of people who are involved in agriculture, 
at the turn of the last century in Canada. It's, it's phenomenal. It's about 34% of all labor in Canada was related to agriculture. And as, agri- as the horse was replaced by tractors, and as farms became bigger and agriculture was mechanized, we changed the nature of growing food and farming. Um, the number of people in that sector has gone from the number that I just gave to uh, now uh, slightly less than 2%. Where did those people go? Well, we started, we became, an, a, a, starting in the 1890s especially, and especially as we moved into the 1920s after the First World War, we became an industrial uh, center with a lot of industrial activities. So people were employed in the automobile industry machinery and and etc uh, etc et well as I just said we now automated those so where did people go next they went to the service sector so people who had good union jobs uh, working on an assembly line assembling washers and dryers uh, uh, no longer doing that those are being assembled in uh, China or uh, South Korea or Taiwan or someplace else um, some of those people, in fact, some of those people are friends of mine that I went to school with. You know, I used to work for Stelco and, and Hamilton, for example, or DeFasco. What are they doing now? Well, they're they're managing uh, Burger King, or they're uh, you know they're working in the insurance industry, or agreed right, Walmart. They're working in the service sector. So when you mm-hmm. automate the service sector, my next my question is, where do these people go? We're going we got a problem on our hands. Um, um, Even. It's not that unemployment is rising, but people are underemployed, and of course, what they're being paid compared mm-hmm. to what they used to be paid in the industrial sector is considerably less. So they mm-hmm. have an income problem, and that's what this idea is designed to address. I don't think it's a social option. I, I would argue that doing something like this is increasingly a social necessity mm-hmm. for the reasons I mentioned. Yes, because, I mean, even those people who are working, especially those in the service sector, they're frequently not able to meet their needs, even though they might be holding down two jobs. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I've been doing some research in none of it where I've spent a fair bit of my time looking at what happens with people who are working in the mining sector. So we have a mine, uh, Agnico Eagle is operating a gold mine not far from a community called Baker Lake. Um, we now have another iron ore mine owned by a German company uh, operating on the northern tip of Baffin Island. One thing that impresses me when I, I did the research on this was how many women, for example, who were employed at the mine doing, of course, what women are often employed to do in situations like that, you know, working in the laundry, working in the kitchen, or doing housekeeping, were still, given the cost of living and the cost of food in the Canadian Arctic, they were still having considerable trouble mm-hmm. um, paying for and, and earning enough money to meet basic needs, including food. So food security was still an issue with them, mm-hmm. despite the fact they had a job. Why? Well, because if you're on social assistance, you know, you're paying 60-some-odd dollars a month rent for social housing. As soon as you get a job, the rent on that unit becomes a market rent which is considerable in the Canadian Arctic. And so the amount of money that you have left for other necessities doesn't go as far as most people might might think. So you know, looking at somebody like that, saying, well, obviously they've got a good job with a mining company, they must be mismanaging their money, shows a considerable lack of understanding 
you know, how somebody's financial situation changes, and not necessarily to the for the better, at least to the point where something like food security is no longer an issue. So you're right, in all kinds of situations, and in all kinds of ways, and with respect to all kinds of people, just because you have a job and you're working for a living doesn't mean that you have enough money to meet your needs. The number of people lining up for food banks, and I'm familiar with some of the data and research on this, it's amazing how many people who are uh, taking uh, advantage of uh, food banks uh, do so because they have to, and they have an they have an income. Seniors are you know big users of food banks, for example. This is this is demeaning, disgraceful. It undermines somebody's self esteem. It creates serious social and mental health problems. These um, are problems that need to be solved, and the idea of a guaranteed minimum annual income, while not without problems, and certainly have some concerns about it, addresses a whole range of problems that are rampant in this country. And, you know, given given uh, how profitable many corporations are and given the total amount of money in the system, uh, it's disgraceful. Well, speaking of disgraceful, you had some examples that you talked about yesterday when we met you. Can you share some, well, data about Apple, for example? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> well, Apple is a culture as much as it is a uh, manufacturer, supplier of uh, computer goods. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a culture which has created an image and an idea around what it does, how it operates, and what it sells, which is, serves its purposes nicely. And, of course, the purpose of any corporation is to maximize its profit. So I... Uh, was a part of and uh, in touch with, uh, working uh, admittedly on the outer edges of a project which was looking at um, the status and the uh, uh, income and uh, the treatment of so-called Apple geniuses. These are just the these are the people who you see working in Apple retail outlets. They do the corporate cheer in the morning and they have access some. But if you take a look at the average for all of North America wage per hour that's paid to a so-called Apple genius, and this is admittedly you know five or six years ago, um, you're looking at eleven dollars and eighty-seven cents an hour. Um, well, nobody can live in a city like Vancouver or Toronto or Chicago or New York or you know anywhere uh, on eleven dollars and eighty-seven cents an hour, um, which is explains why many of these people are young and single and, um, you know, maybe uh, bunking in together and so forth and so on. But, oh, why, when somebody's working full-time, does that, should that be the case? And the other thing that's really interesting is looking at the value of the product per genius that's sold per year. And believe it or not, that's about 620-some-odd thousand dollars. So somebody who's making eleven dollars and you know eighty-seven cents an hour is selling for Apple about six hundred twenty-three thousand dollars worth of product every year. That sounds fair to me. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> we've got a problem. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'm a tech, right? And for me, what I've always found kind of funny is I've got clients that are really righteous about their Macs. They say sure. it's so much better than everyone yeah, else and it's company. an ethical yeah. company and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're also the first ones to sell us out in terms of our private data. Sure, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like we've mentioned on the air a few times, turn Siri off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I'm just saying that, you know, people who, this myth is, 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 needs to be, oh, these myths need to be uh, explored and exploded, for yeah. lack of a better way of putting it. And the same thing's true of Home Depot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what people are paid, uh, if they're a manager, for example, of a particular section on the floor, um, many of these people are getting, you know, less than dollars an hour and mm-hmm. people who are doing stocking shelves and so forth and so on are getting minimum wage whatever it might be in the province in question plus a bit mm-hmm. um and these are corporations of course that are huge and um you know they're really working for and this is what's happened it's nothing new but it's increasingly the case that competition in the private sector and competition among corporations is not just for customers increasingly competition for capital, which means that providing a return to shareholders, which is increasingly large and growing, is a major concern of most corporations. This is a fundamental shift in society. I mean, when we were kids, you know, just out of college and uh, starting our first jobs, we could pay for our living expenses without any difficulty. We could have our own apartment. We could pay for groceries. We could afford to take a holiday. That isn't the case anymore. This has been a a shift, well, a divergence between the haves and have-nots or the the upper and lower aspects of uh, the economy. And, And that is a problem that is systemic. This is it's it's really difficult to say that there's individual solutions when our economy is such that people are being paid minimum wage, which is a wage you can't live on. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that historically, I mean, when I was a student, I, I had to work two jobs in the summer, you know, and if I did, I could sort of get my way through the year without really getting heavily into student loans. So, you know, you can graduate with, you know, a $1,200 student loan or a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, nowadays I have students uh, who graduate with uh, student loans that are 50000 I had one student graduated with a student loan of $88,000. Uh, it, it makes no economic sense. This person isn't going to be able to, if you want to use standard thinking, participate in an economy for a decade. You know, yeah. they they because they're busy paying the banks. <laughs> yeah. um, but tying this back into the guaranteed minimum annual income, this is where an interesting problem arises. Because really, what what governments are going to have to do is get their hands on some of that profit, which is now being generated in order to attract capital to whatever industry we're talking about. They're going to have to get their hands on that in order to deal with the cost of a guaranteed minimum annual income program, which makes sense, which benefits people at a level such that they can actually live on it. Mm-hmm. That's going to be politically difficult because corporations don't really have an interest in doing that. They, but, but what, what's really going on here is by 
focusing on and behaving as a corporate entity in ways that maximize profits so that they can attract capital by paying people lending them money at, at a considerable return on their investment, they are incurring on all of us considerable social cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the argument is that, look, if you're going to behave like this, you're going to have to pay for the social costs that you're generating. And the social cost that you're generating is people who are working for a wage, which is inadequate to meet their needs. And we're going to address this, at least we're going to start to address this in a significant way by making sure that everyone has a guaranteed minimum annual income. And you're going to have to pay for it. That's going to be quite the contest. Yeah, I can see that would be a difficult sell. But what about the benefits to society that, I mean, are they factoring in the improved health care, the improved mental health, the, the sense of well-being, the ability to contribute to the community in a volunteer capacity? All of those things ultimately add to the quality of life and prosperity of a nation. Yes, um... Well, yes. I mean, the research is attempting to do some of this. It's not easy to do because some of these benefits are, you know, it's like translating social and personal benefit into dollars and cents. That's never an easy job. But yes, I mean, most people who are in this area doing the research and taking it serious are well aware of those kinds of benefits and are trying different ways of incorporating them into the research that's done and the results of, of uh, offering someone uh, a guaranteed minimum annual income. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there, there are like very important and serious mental health implications for doing this. And this is another result that has come out of some of the research, well, it's come out of the research that was done in Dauphin, Manitoba a long time ago, but it's coming out of research that's been done done in Ontario and Finland, you know, in the United States and a few places, et cetera, et cetera, is the impact on people's self-esteem, the impact on how people feel about themselves is considerable. You know, when I now have enough money so that I, I'm not identified as someone who is uh, impecunious, is someone who does not have enough money to survive on, or someone who is needing, quote, charity or a handout is I don't regard social assistance as that at all, but that's, let's face it, that's the way in which many people look upon people who line up at a food bank or who run social assistance. But when people are no longer identified uh, that way, and when they're being treated the same as everybody else, the impact on how people start to think about themselves, how they feel about themselves, how they see it, and how they are, in fact, seen changes considerably. This is considerable uh, implications for mental health issues associated with being Mm -hmm. depressed and feeling bad about oneself, being labeled, being identified, being put down, being talked about in a derogatory way. See, long-term, you know, if somebody puts up with this day after day, year after year, believe me, it has serious impacts implications for the capacity of that individual to function. In some ways, you know, the mental health issues are, are exemplary of what I would call a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. 
I think about heart disease. I think about all the other diseases that are impacted by our self-love, if you will, our self-worth. Yeah, well, there are. There are physical health problems yes. as well. I mean, anxiety and stress just ain't good for you. <laughs> um, you know, but you also have people using the, the, the health care system. Yeah. You know, this is a boom for psychiatrists, mm-hmm. psychologists, and, you know, helping professionals, the whole mm-hmm. industry that's feeding off of, you know, what we are doing to people in a electronic in a modern age where their labor is no longer important. Yeah. Hmm. You know, this is a big, big social area of social issue. You can see how complicated it is. I mean, it ties into a whole lot of things. That's why, you know, the guaranteed minimum annual income is so interesting and so important because it speaks to a whole lot of what is wrong with uh, the direction in which we're going, which is... Uh, you know, to give capital more power, more influence, more role in our lives, and to pursue its goals and objectives, which, to put it simply, are, you know, the maximization of profit with more vengeance than ever before in our history. Mm-hmm. we got a problem on our hands here. Capitalism, and I think, you know, it's not, it's not just, it's not a matter of ideology or politics. I mean, the interesting thing about guaranteed minimum annual income is, is people of all persuasions, for different reasons, recognize the importance of this. Apparently, Obama just came out in favor of a universal basic income. Yes. And so that means Donald Trump will be in agreement, too. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that would be a miracle indeed. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I say, people of all persuasions, uh, but that's that's, that's maybe an anomaly. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And uh, Chicago is about, well, they are proposing to start a test yes. of the universal basic income. Yes. yes. So it is, it's gaining traction, the idea. The idea is gaining traction, but the big, big problem is the one that I talked about earlier. It's the competition for resources in order to do this. You know, where really you're going to, the government, in some ways, the government doesn't collect these. People go, what are you talking about when I say this? But in many ways, governments are not collecting enough tax money. We are not paying the social costs of what's going on out there. The proportion of of, uh, our income tax revenue coming from the upper income and and business sector is considerably smaller than it was, say, 30 years ago. Yes, it's shrunk in the name of, uh, you know, uh, the, and that's, that's the result of uh, right-wing thinking, which says that, you know, well, if you give the people who generate wealth, who own corporations and run businesses and so forth and so on, a tax break, um, you know, they'll, they'll be encouraged to do more of the same and they'll create jobs, generate benefits, and we'll all be happy and, you know, um, and things will look good. But what all this ignores, though, is what we talked about earlier. It ignores the nature of, of, of how one makes money in a modern society. And you don't make money by hiring more people. You make money by replacing those people with machines or yeah. electronic devices. And, you know, I'm not saying anything that most people don't already know. All you got to do mm-hmm. is look around you and you can see this happening in 
every sector of the economy. Trickle-down economics does not work. That's already no, been proven. No, it, it, no trickle-down economics was a huge lie from mm-hmm. the word go. And yet we seem to still be running according to that belief system. Yes, because, you know, people don't they have the privilege, and I'll be the first one to admit that I have it. You know, people have not had the privilege or the time or uh, the opportunity to, to really look into all of this and to sit down and study it, to read, to do research, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It takes a, you know, it takes a, a lot of experience and a lot of insight uh, to uh, recognize and understand what's going on out there in a very sort of holistic, big picture way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about, I mean, it's just not, or not just the service industry that has been in, impacted. I think about, okay, think about automatic cars in terms of the self-driving automatic self-driving cars. cars. Mm-hmm. Well, are we going to need traffic cops? Well, yeah. yeah. No, well, this is just, you know, there are many examples like this, but, the, the, the you know, it, it, it's just that the technology uh, is affecting, you know, every sector of the economy in which mm-hmm. people found employment in one way or another. And that that's, that's a big concern. And there are a lot of really basic essential services. One story that came out not long ago in BC was, the severe uh, shortage of care aids because of the aging population, the yeah. number of people in homes, yeah. they are experiencing a serious shortage of care aids. And part of that is because it's a, not a particularly well-paying job. Right. But if, if people Early had... Early childhood education is another. Yes. And in both of those cases, uh, people, if given the opportunity, would prefer to look after their aging parent or their child at home but they're putting them in institutions and relying on paid workers to look after them because they don't have a choice. Right. And those yeah. paid workers don't really care all that much about their loved one. I mean, it's a job for them. Whereas if you're well, taking oh, care of your own child... That's a blanket statement. Though. That's right. not always true. I mean, I, I, I know, and in fact, as a professor of social work, you know, mm-hmm. I've trained and dealt with many people and spent a lot of time in the field supervising practicums and seeing, you know, what goes on. There are a lot of people working in seniors' residents who really care mm-hmm. about and are really interested in and care about the lives of the people that, you know, the, that they're caring for. Um, my mother died five weeks ago, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I spent some time because I'm interested talking to, you know, the people who looked after her, and I, I was super impressed with how much they have gotten to know about her, you know, how they recognized her strengths and her weaknesses and how much they, they cared for her. And the card that they sent uh, me uh, when she passed away well, made it very clear that they mm-hmm. were, uh, you know, they were really committed and interested. And, and that doesn't mean everybody is like that, but there are an amazing number of people in right. that field who really do care, but they're working. They're working hard and they're often working against considerable odds. There aren't enough of them. Exactly. They're working, in, they're working in institutions that are old and where the facilities are not appropriate. I mean, the mm-hmm. deaths from heat in Montreal, you know, uh, disgraceful. Uh, you know, make it very clear what kind of, of infrastructure people are often putting up with and trying to meet the needs of, of people with special needs. Um, 
this is an yeah. old Victorian remnant. It is still, especially in this province with the last government we had, you know, if you, it, is, it is a punitive system. It's designed to humiliate, embarrass, and punish people to make them feel totally ashamed of being on social assistance so they'll get off their duff and get out there and work. This is a myth and an, and an idea about what's going on with people who are on social assistance, which is just not credible. Mm-hmm. But the impact on those people is considerable and degrading, humiliating, and disgusting. The sooner we get rid of it, the better. What about the clawback aspect of these social programs like EI and welfare, where you know it's, it's somewhat discouraging people from taking what work they can take because of the fact that they just lose their benefits as a result. Is that an aspect of universal basic income as well? It's a concern, and it's a, it's a question that's asked, and it's something that the experiments are designed to address. So, you know, at what level do you put the benefit? How much money um, are we talking about here? What, and, and how do we manage it in terms of inflation? change over time. But the other thing is if I have a guaranteed minimum annual income, but I want to add to that, I want to get a job and I want to work, how is the guaranteed minimum annual income as a result treated? So what's going on in Ontario, as to the best of my knowledge, is that what happens is there's a clawback, but it's a 50% clawback. So every dollar I earn above and beyond the minimum, um, my guaranteed minimum annual income is clawed back 50 cents. Right. So in other words, there's still a constru- there's still a, an advantage, in fact, a considerable advantage to working. In other words, I don't lose everything. It's not a dollar for dollar kind of, you know, right. exchange. It's, it's 50 cents on the dollar. Um, and so this issue, this addresses this ongoing concern that I also talked about much earlier around the impact that a guaranteed minimum annual income has on the work ethic. And that's why it's set up that way. There's there And there are other variations on this. Like a, You don't want to penalize people for, for working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but at the same time, you want to make sure that if they choose not to, they have enough money, unlike the welfare system, which is a punitive system, they have enough money to, to, to live on. Um, you know, these are, these are all things that are part of the experimentation that goes on when people change the, the, the level of benefit, they change the uh, rate of clawback, um, you know, to try and see, you know, what works. Do you think that if they bring in, because we did talk about the, the difficulty and the cost of, of doing this, if they brought it in and it wasn't uh, fully meeting someone's cost of living, would it still be beneficial? Um, it, it, its benefit would d- diminish considerably depending on how bad the, the situation is, what the difference was between what somebody needs in order to live a decent life versus, you know, what they're, they're getting. Because, you know, you still end up with the same problem. I mean, people, this wouldn't, this wouldn't end food banks, for example. Uh, people would then be in a position where they 
still needed to they still needed to supplement their income in some other way. Mm-hmm. So you know, peddling drugs, uh, lining up at a food bank. I mean, they're all you know, break and enter, fencing stuff. I mean, yeah, there are all kinds of ways in which people would then still have to subsidize their their income because you're paying it. it the guaranteed minimum annual income is uh, pegged at a level which is so low that it, it, it doesn't allow people to have a, any kind of decent life. Mm-hmm. So you end up with a whole list of social problems uh, as a result of people finding other and maybe even more devious ways of of uh, meeting their needs because, of course, what you've done is you've canceled all the existing social programs and rolled them into this one, which is grossly inadequate. <laughs> That's no route. To go right. right. Have they discovered a drop in crime rates when they've done these tests? Um, that's something else that they're looking at, and I must admit that's one aspect of it. I'm aware of this, but I'm not. I'm not familiar with what the findings have been. But there, and not all, um, not all experiments are, are taking a look at that. But some of them are. I just am not familiar. Aspect of it that I haven't paid a lot of attention to. So, what's the the current rate of, say, welfare for a single person? It varies from province oh, to well, province. That's, yeah, it varies from province to yeah. province, but okay. it also it uh, it also varies with regard to your location. So, the way welfare looks right now is is a matrix. I mean, you you depending on your status, whether you're single or a couple, or you two children, one child, or whatever. Um, and depending on your location, whether you're living in a major urban center, whether you're living in a provincial city, whether you're living in a town or a small town or a rural district, you know, the amount that you're paid is, is different because the cost of living in all of those settings uh, and the cost, depending on your status, are all variable. So it's a matrix. So the, the current uh, test... A pilot project in Ontario is saying they're basically seventeen thousand dollars a year, uh, or twenty four thousand. Yeah, or twenty four thousand for a couple. Yeah, would that be substantially higher than the rate on welfare? Yes. Well, in BC, I think it's what five six hundred dollars a month. Six hundred. Six hundred. Depending again on you know your setting, but you know six hundred is kind of the, yeah. How is that even possible for people to live on that? Well, not. And they have to exactly. have a physical address too, correct? Yeah. If yeah. they're living they're on the street, they don't qualify. Like for a certain length of time, and then you're cut yeah. off, and you have to, you know, suffer in some other way for a length of time before you're eligible to go back on it. I mean, it's the most punitive, nasty system you could imagine, and I really blame the previous government for, you know, being living in the the, the 1800s having a Victorian mentality with regard to this and not really appreciating what the heck is going on. It, 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 the treatment of welfare in some ways reflects how in touch people are or aren't with what's going on in the economy and the culture in general. Yeah. You know, well, my take on what was going on was that there's something seriously wrong with this picture. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in the States, too... Uh, they said, I forget where I read this, it was a couple months back, but the, the number one sector that was becoming homeless were entrepreneurs. 
because the minute that they could not pay their mortgage uh, payment or their rent or whatever, they're out on their butt. And it's a very unforgiving system south of the border, and it's not much better here. Yeah, it depends on what you're using as capital to fund a small business. Yeah. Whether you're incorporated or whether you're using your home, for example, as a, as a security for a loan, mm-hmm. etc. I mean, that's true in this country, too. Mm-hmm. So how do you see this playing out? It, are they going to process the data, and is it going to be universally accepted in the next couple of years, or will it be a couple decades away? And what you were saying yesterday as well was both sides, both uh, well, left and right wing, are accepting this particular paradigm. So can you give us a little detail on that? Well, I all, what I was saying is that there are people on both the left and the right of the political spectrum, so mm-hmm. to speak, who are supportive of this for different reasons. I wasn't implying that everybody is supportive of this. I mean, there are, right. there are people all over the map who are, eh, some people are absolutely opposed to it. Some people are, well, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't I actually don't think that we're going to see... It's a monumental change. I, I I don't think in this country, at least, we're going to see anything happen within the next few years. Mm-hmm. I do think that sooner or later we're going to have no choice. This is addressing a problem that really has to be addressed. It's a matter of time. But mm-hmm. the other thing is that I, I think there is going to be a big struggle, regardless of how necessary it is, um, Governments are going to be compromised because, you know, I, I like the theory of a, a guy by the name of James O'Connor wrote a book in the early 1970s, which has been republished many times, including very recently, called Fiscal Crisis of the State. And his argument is that government has, uh, you know, in particular, two responsibilities. One, its role is to aid and abet the accumulation of capital. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly what... Uh, you know, what the liberal government and the federal liberal government is doing in many, many ways right now. You can see it. I mean, and even the governments on the left do this, you know, with trade missions and encouraging uh, industry and business and uh, giving tax breaks to corporations and so forth and so on. So, you know, in many, many ways, government is aiding and abetting the accumulation of capital. But Mm -hmm. in a liberal democracy, it has another function, and that is getting reelected. In other words, it, it has a legitimation function. It has to be seen to be meeting the legitimate needs of the people who elect it. Mm-hmm. That's what social systems, social policy, social programs are all about. They're there to meet the legitimate needs of a population. Well, you can see what happens. These two functions uh, are, are contradictory mm-hmm. <laughs> because... By aiding and abetting the accumulation of capital, and this is more true now than ever, we've been talking about this in different ways up until now, but by aiding and abetting the accumulation of capital, you're also generating considerable social problems and social costs in society, especially when the accumulation of capital means minimizing your cost of production and getting rid of your labor by automating. So governments are caught in a bind and this is the bind, this is the crisis that's going to develop around the idea of a guaranteed minimum 
outcome. As I said earlier, governments are going to have to bite the hand that they're now feeding. They're going to have to make a case and they're going to have to deal with capital and make sure that they get from capital a, a portion of its the, the, the profit, the, the increased profits that it's generating as a result of, of uh, automation and, and reducing its labor costs, they're going to have to get their hands on some of that pie mm-hmm. in order to pay for the costs of a guaranteed minimum annual income. And that's going to put, pit them against a lot of corporate interests. And what that's going to look like uh, with a disgruntled population that makes it hard for the government what I've discussed as its legitimation function mm-hmm. is really interesting. There's going to be a lot of social conflict around this. And, they, and, and the other thing is that, you know, social policies and programs are usually implemented when people cause a lot of trouble, when, the legiti- when they threaten the legitimation function of government. So you think you it's know. going to take us rioting in the streets like the 60s? Oh, yeah, this is quite possible. And, and real social change only takes place when people, you know, take to the streets. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the history of the 1930s, um, you know, makes that really clear. Um, uh, yeah, actions taken by seniors, in fact, in the 60s and 70s. Um, the action taken resulted in reform to the Canada Pension Plan, uh, the action taken by labor uh, in the 60s and 70s it resulted in, in changes to, uh, you know, uh, unemployment insurance, um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, social action is absolutely uh, plays a major role in the making of social policy, and, and that's, that's a lesson to be learned from looking at the history of the country. Well, there you go. We have interesting times ahead of us. Oh, interesting and difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You've got interesting times coming ahead for you, don't you? Uh, I try to have interesting times all the time. It's yeah. not always easy, but, you know, it's an important goal in life, I think. Mm-hmm. Life should be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, is it possible over the next while to kind of touch base with you here and there and see how things are going? Um, it's certainly possible. We will um, we'll try to set something up then. Okay. Well, I'd love to hear. Pleasure and, um, you know, I hope uh, what we've been talking about is of interest to your audience and uh, gets people talking, thinking, disagreeing with many things I've said, agreeing with other things. I don't know, but, you know, Thinking and talking and discussing things is really important. Yes, it especially is. Especially an issue like this. Well, thanks very much, Frank. Okay. All Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. So we have been talking to Frank Tester, adjunct professor of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba and a retired professor of social work at UBC. And, oh, he's got a plethora of... Uh, of degrees besides that. I think it's like 397, <laughs> something like that. He is um, off to Mozambique to teach uh, reconciliation principles. So that'll mm-hmm. be another interesting thing to keep track of if we can touch, way, 
touch base with him in the next little while. And if you're interested in learning more about the guaranteed basic income, uh, there is a, a, an organization called Basic Income Canada Network. The website is basicincomecanada.org. And uh, they keep people apprised of what's happening in Canada and what the studies are coming up with. And uh, they have a petition. They're always trying to add more people to the numbers who have publicly stated that they're in a, in agreement with the concept of basic universal income. So, so check them out and uh, sign the petition mm-hmm. if you think it's a, a, of all at all of interest. Because really, we are, as Frank said, we are heading further and further down the rabbit hole. I guess. Uh, in terms of automation, we're looking at the, for instance, the people who drive trucks, transportation sector is huge. That's a very large sector of the employed population right now. And they will be losing their job when these uh, automated vehicles come on. Lawyers and doctors. Lawyers and doctors. Oh, yeah, they're already being replaced by AI slowly, but it's happening. Yeah. And uh, less and less slowly as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely one potential way of addressing the problem of underemployment and unemployment in Canada mm-hmm. and around the world, actually. Apparently, Finland uh, was doing a pilot project, but I believe they have um, they've canceled it. Um, so that's unfortunate, mm-hmm. but uh, keep your ears open because Ontario is only one year into their pilot project and uh, releasing data as they go along. So that brings our show to a close. It does. Oh, and for our listeners, just a quick update. Sharon and Simon Bamber are going to be going off to... They got their funding. Walk the way, yes, mm-hmm. and paint the way. Uh, And they will be sending us updates along their travels. So we'll be talking to them once in August before they leave. And then we'll be getting updates from them uh, along their trip whenever they mm -hmm. have access to the internet, I guess. Mm -hmm. And when their donkey cooperates. So if you haven't um, heard about that show, if you haven't listened to that show, check it out on shifthappens.media. And we always post our shows, unless I'm being delinquent, on Mm shifthappens.media. So feel free to go there and uh, you can hear audio of previous shows. So that brings our show to a close. We're going to play a tune to send us on our way. And up next is going to be Amplifying Voices of Our Community. Thank you for listening. And we will see you, or you'll hear us next Next week. week.